0: Well, the reality is, is that conflict is in every area of our life. This video perfectly, I think, illustrates a number of different emotions that help facilitate conflict, including selfishness, anger, resentment, bitterness, brokenness, and pride. You know, the reality is, is is that conflict is part of our human experience. It's everywhere. Conflict can be found in nearly every relationship that exists. And also the reality is is that some of our relationships, sadly, are defined by the conflict that exists in them. But if we ever stopped and asked where does conflict come from? What facilitates conflict? What are the mechanisms that make conflict occur in our lives? Well, conflict comes from diversity. And diversity was created by God. In fact, diversity was actually meant in the beginning to be a blessing for us. Diversity is, well, for one thing, it's biologically required. It's socially required. And diversity comes from a creative God, a God that created the heavens and the earth, every walk of life, and it was meant to be a blessing. But in our human um, sin, we have destroyed what diversity is meant to be. And so it's in this backdrop of diversity that Jesus comes onto the scene. It's in, against this worldwide human canvas of pride and anger, selfishness, bitterness, that Jesus steps onto the scene and says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they have been called the children of God. So today, we are in the seventh beatitude. It's not by coincidence that I believe that the seventh beatitude is about peace, seeing as how Jesus himself was called the Prince of Peace. And so, not by coincidence, he has put the seventh beatitude about being a peacemaker here in the Beatitudes. As we continue in our Beatitudes, we're going to look at today how to resolve conflict in relationships. And I'll tell you right now that today's message is not going to be a message that makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. You're not going to leave here today, and while we do believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died and he rose again for our sins, and we follow him and we try to model our life after him, you're not going to leave here today going, yay, Jesus. But what you will leave here today doing is having a real world where the rubber meets the road, practical approach to dealing with conflict in your lives, okay? Okay. So let me ask you this, by a show of hands, who here has experienced conflict in a relationship? Good, just about everybody. I was gonna say, who here is human, if only a few of you rose your hands, but it looks like you guys already beat me to the punch. Everybody here has experienced conflict in a relationship in some way, shape, or form. I'll be honest, there was a time in my life where I loved a good conflict. In fact, I can remember in college, contemplating rather I was going to be an attorney or a politician because I love to argue and have conflict so much with people. The antagonistic side of me loves a good comeback. The antagonistic side of me loves that comeback, and I think everybody here can agree, that comeback in an argument where it just puts the other person right on their back. It just is well-placed and well-timed, and it just feels really good. One of these famous or infamous conflicts that we could talk about. It took place in the early 20th century, and it was quite comical if it wasn't so sad. It took place between the prime minister of Britain, Winston Churchill, and the audacious Viscountess, Nancy Astor. Now, their relationship was volatile at best. They absolutely hated each other. And still today, we don't really understand why they hated each other so much, but the reality is is that not only would they argue right out in public in front of the House of Commons, but they would let it spew out into social events and out onto the street. And it was during one of these fights that Winston Churchill, who was famously known for enjoying a cigar or having a drink once in a while, they were at a social event, and Lady Astor commented to Winston. She said, Winston, you are a drunk. To which Churchill perfectly retorts, and Madam, you are ugly, but I will be sober in the morning. <laughs> Their relationship was, was like this for many, many years, and they went back and forth, and they would have these barbs back and forth, and if you research them, the number of back and forths for, between them go on and on, and it's absolutely perfect. Later on in life, they were, again, arguing and and having their bickering back and forth. And again, Lady Astor lobs out, and she says, Winston, if you were my husband, I would poison your tea. To which Churchill, again, perfectly responds, If I was your husband, I would drink it. And while that may be funny and interesting, it it makes us feel good on the inside because we've all been there at some point where we wish we were quick enough to have a comeback like that. In order for us to be more mature in our faith as Christ followers, we have to learn to become peacemakers. So in order to become peacemakers, though, first we need to understand what peacemaking is. And was it what it isn't? So if you're taking notes today, there are two things that you need to write down that peacemaking isn't. Peacemaking is not avoiding conflict. And peacemaking is not appeasing the other person with whom you have conflict with. I'll say it again. Peacemaking is not avoiding conflict. And peacemaking is not appeasing the one with whom you have conflict with. When it comes to conflict, if you're sweeping it under the rug, ignoring it, swallowing it, generally avoiding it, you are not being a peacemaker. And, in fact, I would argue you're actually taking part in one of the most cowardly ways that you can deal with conflict. Appeasing conflict is always giving in, always being the one in the relationship, whether it's with a spouse or a friend, maybe a brother or sister, that you are the one that always bends. You're the one that always says, okay, let's do it your way. You're the one that says, let's keep peace at any price. This, too, is not peacemaking. Jesus never shied away from a conflict. Jesus always looked at conflict head on and dealt with it in love and in a respectful way. Jesus says, blessed are those who are the peacemakers. So I think we're all in agreement that peacemaking or being a peacemaker is something that we should all be good at. The reality is is that we deal with conflict in nearly every area of our lives, whether it's our houses, our workplaces, our government. We have wars, social conflict, conflict with our spouses, generational conflict, racial conflict, political conflict, and cultural conflict. The list goes on, but let me tell you, unresolved conflict will ruin your life unresolved conflict will absolutely positively destroy your life the reality is is that some of us here today have been dealing with unresolved conflict for days or weeks or months or years and I know for a fact that there's probably some of you here today that have been dealing with unresolved conflict in your life in your relationships For decades. Today, we're going to learn how to be the peacemakers. Today, we're going to learn how to do what Jesus has asked us to do, has instructed us to do, and be the peacemakers. We're going to learn how to resolve conflict in a biblical manner so that we can leave here today and help our relationships be better. But first, Before we look at how to resolve conflict, we have to look at the things that unresolved conflict will do in your life. There's three things. You're going to want to write these down as well. There are three things that unresolved conflict will do in your life. The first is, it will block your fellowship with God. If you have unresolved conflict in your life, it will block your fellowship with God. You can't be right with God if you're wrong with others. Number two, Unresolved conflict will block your prayers. It'll actually keep God from hearing your prayers. If you have unresolved conflict in your life. Husbands, I want to share this with you. 1 Peter 3.7, we're talking about conflict in our marriages. And it says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you Of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Here's another version. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her so that your prayers will not be hindered. So, if you're sitting here as a husband and you're going, my wife, needs prayer because you have conflict and you are not resolving that conflict. You're actually hindering yourself from God hearing your prayers. The third and final reason to the unresolved conflict will block your happiness. If your relationships stink, your life will stink. I know this in my own personal life. If Heidi and I have a conflict and we're at odds with each other, the entire world can be burning down And I don't care. (laughs) It kind of goes back to that old adage, a happy wife is a happy life. Well, that's a little bit of a twist on it. But the reality is, if Heidi and I are at odds with each other, I don't care about anything. I don't care about my work relationships. I don't care if I'm doing well. I don't care even other relationships that don't have to do with our marriage relationship. So you want to make sure that if your relationships are healthy, then all of your relationships will be healthy. So blocks your fellowship with God, blocks your prayers, and blocks your happiness. Those are the three things that will happen because of unresolved conflict. So here we go. We're going to dive into seven biblical steps on how to resolve conflict. Like I said, this isn't a happy-go-lucky, Jesus is awesome message. This is a Probably every person in this room, including myself, needs to implement every one of these steps in every relationship you have. If you implement these conflict resolution steps, because we all just admitted that we have conflict in our relationships, this will help you do with, deal with it in a biblical manner. All right, here we go. Step one, make the first move. Make the first move. Make the first move. Move. You say, well, it was their fault. 99% of the problem is their fault. And that may be very well true. Make the first move. Jesus called us to be peacemakers. Make the first move. Be the one to make the first move. Be the one that says, you know what? I'm going to step above this, and I'm going to make the first move. I'm going to reach out to this person, and we're going to resolve this conflict. Let me ask you this. How many here have ever had a, chur- a fight on the way to church, by a show of hands. Yeah, I have, lots of times. In fact, there was a season in our life where if Heidi and I were going to have a fight, chances are it was going to be on the way to church. And I don't believe that that was a coincidence, but let me share this with you. This is how important conflict resolution is in your life. Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift, i.e., going to church at the altar, and there is, and you remember that there is a brother or sister, i.e. any relationship in your life, that has something against you, leave your gift at the front of the altar, first go and reconcile with them, and then come and offer your gift. What is that saying? It's literally saying if you're fighting on the way to church, you are better off sitting in the car, in the parking lot, resolving the conflict, than coming in and taking part of worship and the service. That is how important conflict resolution is. It doesn't matter if you're the offender or the offended. You are called as a Christ follower to make the first move. All right. So we've decided that we're going to make the first move. What's step number two? Step number two is ask God for wisdom. You've decided that you're going to make the first move. Now we need to be praying about the right words to say. How do we have this conversation with someone? How do we decide to have a loving conversation and ask God for the words to say? James 1.5, if you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him and he will gladly tell you. You say, God, I have this conflict with someone. Man, they really hurt me or maybe I really hurt them or maybe you're angry or maybe you're harboring this bitterness and you say, God, I need the loving wise words to have this conversation with someone. I need you to give me the words to say. And not only the words to say, but the timing of when to say it. I know we've probably, many of us that are married have been a part of this scenario. It's been a long day. The kids are wearing you out. You climb into bed, and right it's about time to go to sleep, your spouse says, we need to have a chat. Timing is critical. The timing isn't always the best immediately following the conflict or the offense. You have to be praying for not only the kind right words to say, but the timing from which to say it. Also, don't have your conflict resolution in public. Man, I tell you what, Heidi and I, we see this a lot. I've been guilty of it. You're going to air it out in public. You're going to air your dirty laundry in front of everybody else to see. And I, can I tell you something? You know what we're doing? We're making fun of you. <laughs> we're sitting there going, they don't have their stuff together. <laughs> don't air it in public. Nobody wants to see it, and it's not benefiting you or anyone else. Have your conflict resolution in private between the person or people with which the conflict is relevant to. There it is. Make the first move. Ask God for wisdom. Step three. This is big. This one's a pride swallower. Start with what is your fault. Now you say, again, Kip, 99.999. Let's do five nines. Let's do six nines for the statisticians in here. Is their fault? That may very well be true. But let me tell you this. Everyone here, including myself, in every conflict can start with a confession to soften the blow. Even if it's simply saying, hey, you know what? Man, that offense that you did to me, man, I, I, I responded that wrong. Would you forgive me? Would you, would you forgive me for taking offense to something and responding poorly? Start with what you did wrong. First look what's inside of you before you start looking inside of what's in someone else. Conflict, as we discussed, is part of diversity, but conflict is also part of self-centeredness. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and she or he wants to do what they want to do when they want to do it. And what happens? This happens. When I've decided that I want to do what I want to do and she's decided or he's decided what he wants to do or she wants to do, and you take that pride and selfishness, you're going to have conflict. James 4.1 tells us, what causes fights and quarrels among you? what They are caused by the selfish desires continually at war inside you. But let me tell you this. We can choose to get along with whoever we want to get along with. It's a choice. You can also choose to love whoever you want to choose to love. It's a choice. You know, in preparing for this message, I listen to a number of podcasts and I watched a number of videos and this one just really stuck out to me. I was watching a video by Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church, and he was talking about conflict resolution. And the topic came up about marriage conflict resolution. And he went on to say that he and his wife Kay had been blessed. They'd been married for a few decades now. In their leadership role, they have counseled hundreds of couples because of who they are within the church. And people have come to them and asked them for counseling. And for a guy of his stature and his background to say this, it not only struck a chord with me, but it also affirms something that I've casually observed among couples. And this also goes for any relationship. He says, with all the biblical knowledge and all the wisdom and all my years of being married and all my years leading a church, when I have marriage counseling with couples, there's two words that all of that can be boiled down to two words you want to know what those words are grow up grow up rick warren is saying that from his decades of being married and his decades of leading a church he could boil down all of the biblical knowledge that he has into two words grow up i have casually observed that to be true grow up it isn't about you it's not Can I just say that being married isn't about you? It's not about being happy either. Your marriage is designed to be a proclamation and a reflection of God's good and grace in our lives. That's the purpose of your marriage. The happiness and the joy that comes out of it is a byproduct of that. Step four, listen to their hurt and their perspective. Anytime there is hurt, it is because someone got their feelings hurt. Hurt people hurt people. Those that deserve love and deserve grace and deserve patience, chances are, are the least likely that you want to give it to. I can tell you personally that obnoxious, annoying, abrasive people make me want to turn and walk away. When I'm around an obnoxious person or abrasive person, someone that just wants to be argumentative all the time, I'm probably like you. I ain't got time for that. I'm a, I want to turn and walk away. But those are the people that need us to be the most compassionate towards them. If you want to connect with people, you need to understand their needs and their hurts. James nine, be quick to listen and slow to speak. And slow to get angry. Most people that I know that are abrasive are the quickest to speak and the slowest to listen. Don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. Here's one. Number five, we're on the home stretch here. Number five, speak the truth tactfully. Speak the truth tactfully. Sadly, I am a millennial. I don't like to be identified as a millennial. I wish that they would move the definition of millennial one year the other direction and I wouldn't be a millennial. I'd be a Gen Xer and I would be a happy, happy man because much of what millennials are is framed in a not very positive sense. And this is something that millennials have taken on and this phrase is common in their vernacular and other generations and other people have started to adopt it. You know what that phrase is? I'm just going to say it like it is. I'm just going to say it like it is. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm just going to call it like it is. Well, that's fine. You can call it like it is. You know what that's called? It's called being rude, and you're a jerk. And we're going to call you a jerk. (laughs) Saying it like it is is not always the best approach. Speak the truth tactfully. Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. If you say something in the conflict that you're experiencing, whether it's your relationship with your spouse, a sibling, a parent, a co-worker, if you speak it offensively, it will be received defensively. You don't just get to say it like it is and then walk away from it. Saying it like it is, chances are, is the most abrasive way you could say it, and it's not going to get you very far. Also under this, parents. Yelling at your kids is not the most effective way to get them to understand. I get it. They spilt the juice. They did what you asked them not to. They spilled something on the carpet. They disobeyed. I get it. I'm a parent. I want to yell. It's something that I had to work with when I first became a parent. And it was actually something that Heidi most importantly imparted on me that, Yelling at your kids is the least effective way to get them to understand. You can be right but wrong at the top of your voice. Okay? As parents, we need our children to be brought up in a loving home, and yelling at them is not imparting that on them. I can tell you from personal experience, I grew up in a home like this. My mom was a great mom. She raised myself and my siblings well, She took us to church. She imparted many great things on us. But one of the things that she struggled with was being quick to yell and sustaining that yelling. And she still struggles with it today. But the reality is, is I can tell you this. I don't remember a single thing that she said at the top of her voice, but I sure do remember that tone. And the same goes for our children now. Yelling at our kids is not the most effective way to get them to understand. We are never persuasive when we are abrasive. And it's not how you say it. It's not what you say, but it's how you say it. Proverbs 12:18. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Again, my wife is perfect at this. I make a joke with her sometimes that As leaders and as in the leadership role that we've had for a number of years, she's had to have very difficult conversations throughout that time period. And one of the things that she is an absolute master at is having difficult conversations with people. And when they leave that conversation, this is what happens. They're BFFs. BFFs. She leaves a conversation, and the person with whom maybe she's had to have one of the most intimate or difficult conversations with, all of a sudden, they're BFFs. And why is that? Because it's how she said it, not what she said. Ephesians 4.29, do not use harmful words, but only helpful words, the kind that build up and provide what is needed. Also under this, I want to share this with you. Can I just say that texting during a conflict is absolutely one of the worst things that you can do? I'm someone that works in technology. Some people think I sell computers. I don't sell computers. (laughs) I don't work on computers. I have a computer. But what I do do is I sell systems that facilitate technology in all of our lives. And based on that, In communication in our lives, it's been a progression. We used to have face-to-face conversations. Then the telephone came. Then email came. And now we're at texting. And texting is not a formal means of conversation. Can I just tell you that texting is like the graffiti of communication? If you are texting your conflict out with each other, you are most likely adding fuel to the fire because here's what happens you are throwing these bombs out and you don't have to be there for when they go off. If you're texting, you are escalating the problem, not de escalating it. Focus on a face to face conversation and chances are you're going to be a little bit more polite. You're going to be a little bit more loving and you're going to be a little bit more understanding all right step six fix the problem not the blame address the issue don't accuse the person as long as we're attacking each other we're not attacking the problem whether you are having problems with money or sex or in-laws or children Start fixing the problem and stop accusing the person. Labeling or insulting is gets you nowhere. Here's one that probably you've all experienced. Words of mass destruction. Does anybody know what that is? That's the word in your relationship, whether it's with your spouse or a brother or sister or with her parent. You know if you get in a conflict, if you drop that word, it's all going to blow up. Heidi and I have a word like that. It's actually my word. You know what that word is? Always. Always. I might only do it occasionally. I might have only ever done it once. But if Heidi says, you always do that, man, my blood pressure goes up. I get defensive. And so long ago in our relationship, we decided, man, we're just not going to use those words. We're going to avoid those words. We're going to take those words off the table when we're having a conflict and we're not going to use them. Avoid words of mass destruction. All right, here we are, step seven. Focus on reconciliation, not resolution. Focus on reconciliation, not resolution. Reconciliation means the re-establishing of the relationship. Resolution means fixing the problem. There are some things that we simply cannot resolve. The old adage, let's agree to disagree. And let me share an example with you. As Christ followers, there are some things in our faith that we hold dear that are tenement to our faith and what we do in our life that we simply will not resolve with the other end of the spectrum. But that doesn't mean that we have to be rude. It doesn't mean that we have to be condescending. Let me tell you, I don't believe that anybody ever changed their opinion because somebody yelled at them enough, put a sign in their face enough, called them names enough. We can disagree with people without being disagreeable. So learn to be able to reconcile the relationship. And chances are, whatever issue you're having will take care of itself. So there they are, the seven biblical steps to conflict resolution. In case you missed any of them, make your first move. Pray for wisdom. Begin with what's your fault. Confess something. Man, even if it doesn't have anything to do with the conflict. Hey, hon, I'm sorry, I I did this, whatever, six months ago, I'm sorry. Listen for their hurt and their perspective. Conflict always starts with hurt feelings. Speak the truth tactfully, say it in love. Don't say it and spray it, say it in love. Fix the problem, not the person, and focus on reconciliation of the relationship, not resolution of the problem. Conflict is everywhere, you guys. War, division, arguments, stress between couples, racism, violence, terrorism, the list can go on and on. One of the things though, as I was going over this message that I was cautious to share and I'm going to share it is this. There are times and I want you to I want you to hear me very carefully. There are times when you cannot come to conflict resolution with someone. And I I was hesitant to share that because what happens is is you hear you start to get to the point where you're like, you know what? I can resolve this conflict. And then if I add this to the end, you go, oh, well, that, that's, my, that's my conflict. It can't be resolved. We should be striving to resolve conflict in every relationship we have. But there are some relationships that are toxic, that are hard, that the person on the other end simply doesn't wanna hear what you have to say. They don't want to hear your desire and your heart to reconcile. And that is a reality of some of our relationships. But let me share this with you. That may be the case, and you may be able to reconcile in your own heart the conflict, and here's the barometer to whether or not you've reconciled that. If, when that person's name comes up, you're one of the first person to throw a barb out, or to slam that person, or to share dirt on that person, or if you know that that person's gonna be somewhere where you're going, and you change your plans because you don't wanna be around that person, chances are you haven't really reconciled that in your heart. So you can reconcile an unreconcilable relationship in your heart, but it's gonna be tough, and the healing might take longer, and it might not be complete, but just know that there are some relationships that simply cannot be fixed except for by the grace of God. And I would encourage you to continue to pray for that person and pray that they come to the point where you can reconcile the relationship because that is what we are called to do. As a result of all the diversity and all the conflict in our lives, we have broken relationships, we have broken marriages, we have broken governments, broken lives, and broken hearts. And my challenge to myself and to everyone here is is that to be a peacemaker, as a peacemaker, you are the single greatest agent for peace in every relationship you have. Nobody else can bring peace to your relationships like you can. Start with your marriage if you're married. Marriage should be a place of refuge. It should be a place where you come home and it's a place of refuge. It should be something that people look at your marriage and go, I want what they've got, not because they're perfect or not because they have it figured out, but because they can deal with conflict resolution well and their marriage reflects the love of God in our lives. Last verse, we are called to be peacemakers, 2 Corinthians 5, 18, for God has restored our relationship with him through Christ. And he has given us this ministry of restoring relationships. He's given us the ministry of restoring relationships. Your relationship, my relationships, your ministry, my ministry, our ministry. This is the greatest call that we have when it comes to our relationships, to be ministers of peace, to be people that against all odds look to be the peacemaker in the relationship Make the first move. Be the one to make the first move. Even if it's not your fault, guys, be the, make the first move. Pray for wisdom. And focus on restoring the relationship. Ask God for the right words to say. Confess yourself, what you've done wrong. Soften that blow. It's going to be a tough conversation, but man, if you confess first, it'll soften that blow. And work through the conflict. We thank you for being peacemakers. If you're a peacemaker here today, we just pray continue to do so. Don't be a peacekeeper, be a peacemaker. Would you pray with me? Father God, we just thank you that you are the peacemaker in our lives. Lord, you sent your son to deal with the conflict that was in our lives. Lord, you sent him to the cross. Lord, we rejected him, but he went to the cross for us to deal with our conflict and our pride and anger, our resentment, our bitterness. And so, Lord, we just pray that as we go out of this place, if there are conflicts in our life with a spouse, with a brother or sister, with a coworker, anyone, Lord, any relationship, that you would give us the words to say, that you would give us the courage to be the ones to reach out. Lord, we are fearful of conflict, and it's through that fear that we oppose having conflict resolution, but we pray that you would make us strong, that you would give us the strength to focus and address that conflict. Jesus, we love you. Lord, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you that you are the Prince of Peace, that you have come to settle the conflict in our lives, Lord, and we just pray for all that you've done. In your name we pray. Amen.